Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to three openings of Scripture. Philippians 2, Ephesians 1, and Hebrews 1. Philippians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. I'll start in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. It says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, think this way. Who, being in the form of God, thought it robbery to be equal with God. That's a really poor translation. The thought being conveyed here is, though Jesus knew that he was equal with God, he didn't hold on to that. He didn't consider that something to hold on to, which would have kept him from coming to the earth. But made himself of no reputation. Another translation, many other translations say, but stripped himself of his heavenly power and glory. See, it goes back to verse 5, or verse 6, rather, where it talks about he didn't hold on to that place that he had with God before he came to the earth, but instead stripped himself of his heavenly power and glory and took upon him the form of a serpent and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things or beings in heaven and things or beings in earth and things or beings under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I want you to notice that, uh, that the, the fact that verse 9 tells us, Wherefore God has also highly exalted him. Notice that first word, wherefore. In other words, it's saying because of these things. Because he stripped himself of his heavenly power and glory, came to the earth in the form of a man, was made in the likeness of sinful flesh without sin, offered himself up as a sacrifice on the cross. Because of these things, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, because of these things, God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that's above every name. I want you to see something. We'll see it several times here in the scriptures that we're going to look at initially. I want you to see something. The name that Jesus has now is not the name that he had on the earth. Notice it does not say because he suffered the death on the cross that God restored unto them the name that he had here. No, he stripped himself of his heavenly power and glory. He was operating here on the earth not as the son of God, but as the son of man. A man born of woman who therefore had authority on the earth. God gave man authority on the earth when he created the earth and put man in the middle of it. You remember Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our own image and let him have dominion over the works of our hands. Well, when did God take that dominion away from mankind? He never did. Now, a lot of times, and I've probably even said this wrongly so in times past, but a lot of times we say when Adam fell, he lost his dominion on the earth. That can't be true. If that were true, then why does the Old Testament say in places like in chapter 29 where God said, Wherefore I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. If man didn't have the authority to choose life, why did God tell him to choose it? Satan's not the one with authority on the earth. Satan's never been the one with the authority on the earth. Man was. Well, Jesus made in, in form as a man, came into the, to the earth in fashion as a man or in the likeness of sinful flesh. The reason that he came to the earth in flesh was so that he could operate as a man with authority on the earth. Now, clearly, he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus said himself, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to heal the sick and heal the brokenhearted and so forth. We know that he did no mighty work. He did no sign, no miracle, no wonder before he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. So Jesus was therefore, if we put these scriptures together, we have to conclude that Jesus was operating on the earth, not as the son of God. Because God didn't have dominion on the earth. Man did. He came in form of uh, the form of a man. That's why he called himself over and over again the vast majority of the time the son of man rather than the son of God. So he was operating on the earth as a man with authority and anointed of the Holy Ghost. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost in power, 
Acts 10, 38 says, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed with the devil because God was with him. How God anointed. If Jesus was operating on the earth as the son of God, why would he need to be anointed? And we'll go even a step further with our question, who could anoint God? Who's greater than God or who would be greater than Jesus to be able to anoint him? Bible says he's co-equal and co-eternal, which means he's equal with God the Father. God the Father is over Jesus only because Jesus has submitted himself to him, but not in power, not in being. He's just as eternal and just as much without beginning and without end as the Father God was. So how would he be anointed? But if he came to earth as a man, stripped himself of his heavenly power and glory, then he would be in a position for God to anoint him to do the healings and the miracles and so forth. So wherefore, God has highly exalted him because of the death, burial, and resurrection, not because of the work he did here on the earth, but because of the death and the burial and the resurrection, the sacrifice of his own blood. For this reason, for this cause, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. Jesus on the earth didn't have a name that was above every, every name in heaven and earth and hell. But he does now. Can you see that? Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start with Paul's prayer in verse 16. He said, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, I pray this over and over again. But if Paul was inspired by the Holy Ghost to pray it over and over again for the Ephesians, it'd be a good thing for us to pray it over and over again for ourselves. I cease not to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding, many translations say the eyes of your spirit, being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. You do realize that when Jesus was here on the earth, he was not set at the right hand of God the Father. You do realize, I hope, that when Jesus was here on the earth, he was not in a position that was far above all principality and power and might and dominion. In every name that is named. You do realize that don't you? But he obtained that. He obtained that place at the right hand of the father. How? Through the sacrifice of the cross. Through his death, burial and resurrection. And that was the, pl- the point in time. When God set him at his own right hand. In a position far above. Not just a little bit above. Far above. This word far above or the phrase far above really means a lot more than the English translates it. It means so much more, so much higher, so far above that it shouldn't even be compared. It's a superlative that doesn't come out in the translation. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. So again, the Bible's telling us that Jesus has a name that he didn't have here on the earth. And he obtained that name through the victory of the resurrection. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. God who at sundry times, meaning in times past... And in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. 
whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Who being the upright, the, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, that's on the cross, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made, notice that phrase, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now we'll keep reading another few verses, but let me stop here long enough to make the point. The Bible is saying that Jesus, though he was the creator of the world, was appointed heir of all things. In other words, God's eternal plan of redemption. The Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. Before the earth was ever created, God had a plan of redemption for man. Now, not everybody in heaven knew what that plan was. The angels marveled. Psalm 8 says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? The Bible tells us that was one of the angels that was talking. When God declared his plan of salvation, or declared his plan to create man, one of the angels says, You're going to do what? What is this thing called man that you're going to create? Now, they had already witnessed the devil being put in charge of the earth and rebelling against God and taking a third of the angels with him. They witnessed the devil being stripped of any authority and cast down to the earth. And apparently he made the earth a wilderness, turned it into a place without form and void. And that was the condition that God finds it in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. The earth became without form and void and God spoke, created the worlds or recreated the earth the atmosphere, the sun, the moon, the stars, and so forth, dry land and the seas, and then said, let us make man in our own image and let him have dominion. And the angel said, what? What is man that you're mindful of him? What is your plan to create another being, another class of being, made in your image an exact duplicate and likeness of yourself, which means they're higher than the angels, created to be at least. They said, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is this plan that you have for man? Well, when Jesus comes to the earth, strips himself of his heavenly power and glory for the purpose of purging man's sins, being a sacrifice for sins, the Bible says that God raised him, sat him down on the right hand of majesty on high because he was made so much better, made through his victory, through the victory of the cross. It made him so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance. I want you to notice that Jesus received an inheritance. If he's the creator of the world, how does he have an inheritance? Isn't everything his already? Well, it was until he laid aside his heavenly power and glory. But God's original plan of redemption, his eternal plan of redemption, was that Jesus would die as a sacrifice for man, bring man back into a place of righteousness, and then gain an inheritance that includes a name that's above every name. Now keep that in mind as we read the next few verses. Being made so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For under which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now let me ask you a question. When is he talking about that God said to Jesus, this day have I begotten thee? See, most of the church looks at that as being Jesus being born in a manger. That's not the day that Jesus was begotten of the Father. That was the day he was born of a woman. But Jesus was born of the Father when he was raised from the dead, spiritual death. That was the day that God declared, this day have I begotten thee. The Bible says, let me refer you to it. We won't take time to look at it right now. But let me refer you to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. Speaking of Jesus, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now what death is he talking about? The firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now, what death is this speaking of? 
Well, you do realize, of course, that Jesus was not the firstborn from physical death, don't you? There were people in the Old Testament that were raised from the dead. So he certainly didn't beat them. There were people in Jesus' ministry that were raised from the dead. So he didn't precede them either. He couldn't have been the firstborn from physical death. Well, then what death is he talking about? Spiritual death. Jesus was the firstborn from spiritual death. See, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Doesn't mean physical death. Because man still dies physically. Even though we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. The wages of sin is not physical death. The wages of sin is spiritual death. Well, if the wages of sin is spiritual death and Jesus was made sin for us who knew no sin, then what death did then what price did he have to pay? He died spiritually. Now, I know that's controversial in a lot of circles. Some people will say, well, that's just, that can't be right. And some people will say that's blasphemous to say that God could die spiritually. But, folks, if the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, and Jesus didn't die spiritually, then somebody still has to. If Jesus didn't die a death that separated him from God, the Father, a spiritual death, then that means you still have to pay your own price. Another way to look at it is, If Jesus died for the ungodly, which the Bible says he did, what death would they have died? What price must he have had to pay, if not spiritual death? Well, that fits with what the Bible says because it says he was the firstborn from the dead. If that's not the firstborn from physical death, then it has to be the firstborn from spiritual death. And he was. Jesus was the first man born again. Now, we don't usually think of that in terms of Jesus because we look at him only as the Son of God. But Jesus had to die spiritually to pay the price for sin. And if he had to die spiritually, that means he was eternally separated from God until the Spirit of life came back upon him once the price was paid. God said, It's finished, the price is paid, the work is done. The life of God came back upon him and he became the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from spiritual death. Well, if it's the firstborn from spiritual death, there's a second, third, and fourthborn. Who was that? That's you and me. That's the church. He was the firstborn from the dead. Back to Hebrews chapter 1. Being made so much better than the angels as he is by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day, the day the price was paid. This day have I begotten thee, the day he was born again. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now I want you to look with me to Matthew chapter 24. I'm sorry, it's Matthew chapter 28. And while you're turning there, let me make a couple of comments. In E.W. Kenyon's book, The Wonderful Name of Jesus, now I know some people have a problem with E.W. Kenyon, and his name and reputation has certainly been slandered to a great degree in the modern-day church. But anybody that would read is just the first few chapters of the book, The Wonderful Name of Jesus, and not recognize that this is a man that loves God with all of his heart, that person wouldn't know the truth if Jesus appeared to him and told him. The people that slander his name are dishonest. You cannot read any of his materials and not come away with the knowledge, or you can't read them with an open mind, an honest heart, and not come away with the knowledge that E.W. Kenyon loved God with all of his heart. You just can't do it. I challenge you to try it for yourself. Well, in the first, few, first chapter of his book, The Wonderful Name of Jesus, he speaks of a time where he was teaching on the name of Jesus. He died in 1948, so I'm not sure exactly how long before his death this was, but it was some period of time at least. So he said he was teaching in Tennessee, and he was speaking about the name of Jesus. And there was an attorney in the, in the congregation in the service, and the attorney interrupted him and said, Excuse me, Mr. Kenyon, are you saying that Jesus gave us the power of attorney in his name? 
Well, Brother Kenyon answered and said, well, you're a lawyer and I'm not. You tell me. Did Jesus give us the power of attorney? See, the man, the attorney was using legal terms that Kenyon wasn't familiar with. And so he said, well, if language means anything, then yes, he did. Then Brother Kenyon asked him, he said, well, then tell me this. What value is the power of attorney? And the lawyer answered, he said, it depends on the authority and the man that gives it to you. The power that's in back of the man's name. Now, we think of the power of attorney, we do have some experience with powers of attorney. But for the most part, people deliver powers of attorney or execute powers of attorney in times of mental illness or medical conditions or something like that. It's always a negative context at least in my experience the only time that a power of attorney that I've been involved in a power of attorney is in a real estate transaction and it was just for a specific purpose for a specific point in time otherwise the only thing that I ever know of or hear about powers of attorney have to do with the negative connotation so I want to challenge you with another example that we're more familiar with that's in a positive sense and that is the executor of a will or an estate. We know that if someone leaves an estate, which is an inheritance, which the Bible said Jesus received, we know that if somebody receives an inheritance or an inheritance is left, an estate is left, there is an executor that carries out the will of the person who died as identified by the written document that we know of as the will, right? And that executor has control to utilize the resources according to the terms of the will as if the person who had died was alive and doing it themselves, right? When I look in Matthew chapter 28, this is Jesus being, after he was raised from the dead, appearing to the disciples. And notice what he says. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power, this is the first time that Matthew records Jesus appearing after he's resurrected. And notice the first thing that Matthew records that he says. All power, this word power is the word authority, not ability. All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now that makes sense and it goes along with the things that we just read. God has highly exalted him, Philippians uh, Philippians 2 verse 9. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of things are beings in heaven, things are beings in the earth, and things are beings under the earth. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that Christ has been raised and seated at the right hand of God, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this world but in that which is to come. We just read in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus, being made so much better than the angels, receives an inheritance. What kind of inheritance was that? Well, he was raised far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Every name that is named. So when Jesus says all power, literally all authority, is given unto me, he's identifying his new position. And notice what he does not say. He does not say... I'm alive again, so things are just like they were before I left. No, he's describing a new condition. See, Jesus didn't have all authority in heaven and earth when he was here operating as the Son of Man. In Revelation chapter 1, when Jesus appears to John, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the one that was dead and am alive and, and live and I'm alive forevermore. He said, and I have the keys of hell and death. He didn't have those when he was here on the earth. He had had the keys of hell and death when he was here on the earth. He wouldn't have had to go to the cross. Those were part of the spoils that he received through his conquest of death, spiritual death, through his work on the cross. So when he says all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth, he's talking about a brand new condition. Now, if we stop reading right there, we could say, well, whoopee, we're glad that he's got it. And that's where most of the church stops. 
Most of the church world stops right there and says, yeah, well, thank God. God's got all authority in heaven and earth. But if God's not here on the earth, who's supposed to use the authority? Maybe a better question is, how did Jesus gain the authority on the earth? I thought that was given to man. Let us make man in our own image, Genesis 126 says. In the exact image and likeness of God. The exact duplication of kind. And let them have dominion over the works of our hands. So did Jesus come to the earth to change God's original plan? Was God's original plan for man to have authority on the earth? But when man messed it up, Jesus had to come back and take it for himself to go back to heaven so that now the one with authority on the earth is not here? If that's the case, then what are we supposed to do? But that's what most of the church world thinks. Or they don't think, they just assume that to be the case. But notice he's not through talking. He says, all authority is given to me in heaven and in the earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all men. In other words, he's saying, use the authority here on the earth. You remember that the Bible says that, we're, that he's the head and we're the body? What body does Christ have to operate in the earth, here, here in the earth? And it has to be a man. Man's still the one with authority. God said, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion. God says, I am God, I change not. So if God's original plan was for man to have authority on the earth, it's still his present day plan to, for man to have authority on the earth. So if Jesus received that authority, gained that authority by being the son of man, victorious over death, but he's not here on the earth because he doesn't have a flesh and blood body as we do now, how's he supposed to operate here on the earth? He's going to have to have an executor of his will. Who is the executor of his will? He said the church was. He's the head and we're the body. Go, in there, go therefore into all the earth and teach all nations. Better translation is make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. How? He says he's with us always, even to the end of the world. Now, there's two ways you can interpret that. You can, talk, you can interpret that either as, uh, in terms of time or in terms of position. If he's saying, I'm with you to the end of the world, I'm with you until the world ends, that's relative to time. But if he's saying, I'm with you to the end of the earth, talking about geography, I'm with you no matter where in the earth you go. Well, I believe both are true, don't you? I believe he's specifically talking about going to the, end, going to the ends of the earth. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. How is he with us? Well, he lives on the inside of us, Pastor Mike. Well, that's great. But what good is him having authority? Why did he tell us all authority is given unto him in heaven and earth and tell us going to, into the earth? Why didn't he just say, guys, it's a new day. I'm living on the inside of you now. You know the change that just occurred to you or occurred in you when you made me your Lord and Savior. Just be happy with that. But in fact, in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16, Mark adds some information that Matthew doesn't give us. Jesus said, and these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. These signs shall follow. Literally, it's a company. These signs shall accompany. See, the Bible says that we're co-laborers together with God. We work together with him. That means he's not in front of us and we're not in front of him. We're together. These signs shall accompany the believing ones. Well, what signs are they? Well, they'll take up serpents, exercise authority over the devil. They'll speak with new tongues. They'll cast out devils. They'll lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. And it also includes divine protection. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. These are the signs that will accompany. Now, how is it that these signs are going to accompany them? Well, notice in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. This is the last thing 
that Jesus spoke to his disciples about before he went to the cross. That's one reason I like the book of John especially because John wrote this some 60 years after Jesus was raised from the dead and he fills in the blanks that some of the other gospel writers didn't, didn't tell us. Specifically, he gives us more information about the last night when Jesus was betrayed at the Last Supper and the things that he said than any of the other gospel writers. And here's part of what he said on that last night he was with them. Verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Now notice what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a cause and an effect. He says the cause for the effect, the works being the effect, the results being the signs and wonders, the works that he does was doing on the earth. He says the cause that will bring about that effect is me going to the Father. Well, what do you think Jesus meant when he said that? Why does Jesus say he's going to the Father? Well, Jesus wasn't in the dark about what was going to happen after he died on the cross. He knew he was going to have to pay the price for sin. He knew that price was spiritual death. But he knew God's plan was not to leave him in hell. The Old Testament prophesied that. Thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither will the blessed one see corruption. So he knew God would raise him from the dead. And he knew that God would raise him from the dead to an inheritance that would enable the church to do the same works that he did in the same authority and the same power that he did and operated here on the earth. So again, he said, believe me for the work's sake. He that believeth on, well, let me read it again. Getting twisted up. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. I'm not sure what the greater works are. I'm not going to bother about them until I start doing the works, though. A lot of people want to say, yeah, well, the greater works are getting people saved. Jesus was never able to get anybody saved. And so that's a greater work. Okay, that's fine. But he said we'd do the same works too, didn't he? See, some people will say that healing stuff, that's not important because the greater work is getting people saved. But Jesus said we do the same works, which is healing and signs and wonders, and greater works. So if you want to say the greater works is getting people saved, that doesn't do away with or negate the fact that healing is still a part of the work that he said we do too. And whatsoever you shall ask. He's talking about doing the works that he did and the greater works. And he said, and whatsoever you shall ask. The word ask means to call for require or make a demand on whatsoever you shall ask he's not talking about prayer he's talking about the exercise of authority now remember these are the, the works are available to us because he's going to the father because he's going to be given a name that's above every name far above all principality and power and might and dominion it's because of the inheritance that he knew that he would receive jesus in his prayer in john chapter 17 he said this, he said, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Which means the glory that he was operating here on the earth in was not that same glory. The reason it wasn't the glory he had with the Father before the world was created was because that was the glory he laid aside to come to the earth. But he says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. He knew that was part of his inheritance. He knew that would be a part of what he was restored to. And whatsoever you shall call for, require, demand in my name. He knew he'd be going back to receiving the glory as the creator of the universe. At the right hand of the Father. So he said, whatsoever you shall call for, require in my name. That will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So what's he saying? Well, if you put this together with Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you even to the end of the world. He's saying, I'm with you in the power of my name. And these signs will follow the accompany, will accompany the believing ones. 
because I am with you in my name, the power of my name. Now, folks, what I want you to see about this is very simply this. We don't have time to go much further into this. But here's what I want you to see. He's putting our relationship with him and the execution of his will. The Bible is the last will and testament of God the Father as executed by Jesus the Son to provide an inheritance for the church for us now to be the the executors of his will here on the earth. That's what he's saying. He's saying the works that I do shall you do also. You'll be the executors of my will. Now most of the church world is sitting back and looking at the will saying, oh, if only that were true. Instead of being the executor as they're supposed to be. Jesus said, whatsoever you shall call for or require in my name, that will I do. He puts our relationship with him and doing the works, carrying out his will here on the earth or executing his will here on the earth as his agent on a purely legal basis. Now, we usually think of our relationship with God in terms of emotions. We like it when we feel close to God. We don't like it when we don't feel close to God. But Jesus never said a thing about feeling things, feeling close to God, having warm, fuzzy feelings about you and him, ever. But he does put it on a purely legal basis. It works no matter how you feel. At least he's saying so. Now, you might say, yeah, but Pastor Mike, I've tried that. I've heard these scriptures before. I've tried that, and it just didn't work the way he said. Well, I wonder what went wrong. Did Jesus lie? He couldn't have lied, which means the problem can't be on his end. Now, folks, I've had failures, too. I'm not trying to deny it. I don't think anybody can deny it. That, that all of us have had failures in some measure to some degree. But it doesn't change the truth of what Jesus said. Jesus said, what things soever you call for require in my name, that will I do. He didn't say that might I do. He said that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He goes further in the next verse and says, if you call for or require, make a demand on anything in my name, I will do it. And let's look at this in action. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 tells us about Peter and John going to the temple and meeting a crippled man on the way. Verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Now, folks, let me stop there long enough to say this. That's always the rule of life. You can't give somebody something you don't have. The only thing you'll ever be able to give anybody is what you do have. Thank God Peter and John knew they had something. Such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with him into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. Can I ask you a question? Why didn't Peter stop and pray? I don't mean pray about his healing. I mean pray for him to be healed. Notice there's not one word of asking God to do something for this guy. Peter doesn't stop and say, well, let me pray and see if God wants to heal you. 
Neither did he lay hands on him and then ask God to do something about his healing. There's no discussion with God about this one way or the other. He simply used what he knew he had. He simply used what he knew he had. Now you might say, yeah, but he was an apostle. Well, that's true. But if you go further into the story, you'll find out that Peter said, there's no reason for the people to be amazed at the work that they did as if they, by their own power, their own holiness, had made the man to walk. They give credit to the name of Jesus that did the work. In other words, the apostles said it's not because we're apostles. It's not because we're more holy. It's not because we've got more power than anybody else. Well, if they didn't have more power or a better standing with God than anybody else, what did they have? They said they had the name. They said it was the name. So we might say, well, yeah, but the Holy Ghost prompted them to do something. It's amazing to me how many gyrations, mental gyrations we'll go through and hoops we'll jump through to try to take something away from us that the Bible says is ours. And the devil comes to us all and tries to talk us all out of what the Bible says belongs to us. But even if we said, yeah, but the Holy Ghost prompted him to do that, that's fine. Let's assume that that's the case. I believe it probably is. But does that do away with the fact that Jesus said, whatever you call for requiring my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son? Did Jesus intend to say, even though he didn't say it, did he intend to say, and whatever you'll be prompted by the Holy Ghost to call for requiring my name, then that's what I'll really do. Does he talk about in any way, intimate in any way that it's the work of the Holy Ghost that will have to inspire somebody to use the name in order for it to be made good? It's not what John fourteen thirteen says. He said, and if you call for require, King James says ask. But if you call for require anything in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Is this not an example of just that very thing? The people glorify God because the man gets healed. 5,000 people believe the preaching of Peter as a result and get saved because this one man got healed. That's glorifying Jesus, isn't it? So here's the question. We're out of time, so let me close with this. Here's the question. What are you allowed to talk you out of using the name of Jesus? He said, it's yours. He said, whatever you call for or require, whatever you put a demand on in his name, he would do it. What do you let talk you out of doing just exactly that? It's a legitimate question, isn't it? Jesus said, whatever you call for, require in my name, that will I do. I probably need to use this example before we go so that people understand. A lot of times words trip people up, when we talk, especially when we talk about putting a demand on things. I know a lot of people in times past have slandered those of us that believe in the truth of the word and faith in God's word by saying that we're operating in arrogance by demanding something of God. Who are we as human beings to put a demand on the things of God? But remember, he's not talking about relationship. He's not talking about emotions. He's talking about legalities. Every time you write a check, you put a demand on your checking account. You put a demand on your bank. Are you arrogant when you write a check? You write a check because it's part of the legal contract you have with your bank. You're responsible for putting the funds in there to cover the checks that you write. The bank is responsible for making good the check when it's presented to them. It's a legal arrangement. We don't check our attitudes when we write a check, do we? We don't pull out our checkbook and say, well, now I've got to get in the right frame of mind so this check will be good. Make sure I'm walking in love so the bank will honor this check. 
It's a legal arrangement. That's what Jesus is identifying in John chapter 14. Whatever you call for or require, whatever you place a demand on, in the name of Jesus, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. You've got a right to execute the will of God on the earth. Not only in your life, but when others will accept it and allow you to. On their behalf and for their benefit as well. Now you can't push something off on somebody that they don't want. If we could do that, then we'd just push salvation off on everybody that's unsaved and get everybody saved overnight. But that doesn't work. But if someone will allow you to operate on their behalf, you can put a demand on the name of Jesus even to help them. But you can most certainly, because you're the only one involved in your own life, you can most certainly put a demand or call for or require anything according to what we know is God's will, meaning what Jesus paid for, healing, financial blessing, provision, as well as righteousness for yourself. As a matter of fact, isn't that exactly what we do when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives? We put a demand on the name of Jesus, the power, the saving power in the name of Jesus to change us. Well, why could we not, since Jesus paid the same price for sin and sickness, why can we not put a demand on the name of Jesus for healing for our bodies? The answer is we can and we should. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you for the privilege that we have to operate in the name of Jesus. Lord, you said... Whatever we call for or require, put a demand on, in your name, you would do it. Lord, so oftentimes we get tripped up even by the scripture. Where it says, through faith and patience we inherit the promises. And so we think that we have to wait for things that you've already purchased. That you've already paid for. But your word also says that now... Is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. We could say it this way Lord. Today is the day of healing. Now is the accepted time. So in the name of Jesus. We put a demand on the healing power of God. We break the power of sickness. We refuse to allow sickness to operate in our bodies. In the name of Jesus. And we place a demand on the healing that Jesus purchased through the shedding of his blood. The Bible says that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we were healed. So we place a demand on that healing in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, that today is the day of healing and now is the accepted time. Therefore, by faith, we thank you for our healing. We count it done. We believe Jesus is the faithful one, the one that honors his word. Lord, we bless you. We magnify your holy name. We worship you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the power that's in your name, the power that breaks every yoke, every chain of bondage, Thank you that you've already taken his sickness from the midst of us. And by your stripes we are healed. We declare that healing is ours. In Jesus' name. The name that's above every name. The name that's far above principalities and powers. And might and dominion. The name that is greater than every sickness and every disease. We thank you, Father, that in that name. We are healed. Say that after me. In the name of Jesus. We are healed. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand and lift our hands and thank God for the wonderful name of Jesus. Thank you Lord for giving us that name. The name that's above every name.
Bless you, Lord Jesus. We worship you. We magnify your name. We thank you. Faithful is he that calleth us, who shall also bring it to pass. We worship you, Lord Jesus. Lord, it's so good to be healed. You know how we suffered with sickness. You know what a burden it is. But it's so good to be healed. So good to be free from sickness and disease. So good to know that we have authority in the name of Jesus. To be free once and for all. And even as your word says, Lord, affliction shall not rise again the second time. We declare that we're healed once and for all. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. The presence of God is not here by accident. It's here to heal your body. It's here to answer to your need. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. The name, the name, the name. Thank you, Lord, that you're not withholding from any of your children. It's not you that's holding back. So we declare that healing is ours. In the name that's above every name. Hallelujah. Say it with me. Thank God for his healing mercy. Thank God I am healed. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.